You're listening to Scalay Sisters, episode number 13. Welcome to Scalay Sisters, the podcast for the classical homeschooling mama who seeks to learn and grow while she's helping her children learn and grow. Scalay Sisters is a casual conversation about topics that matter to those of us in the trenches of classical homeschooling who yearn for something more than just checking boxes and getting it all done. I'm your host, Brandi Bensel. You can find me at Afterthoughts, that's my main blog, and also Teaching Reading with Bob Books, which is where I keep my line of printable phonics lessons. My co-host today is the one and only Pam Barnhill. Pam is an author, speaker, blogger at pambarnhill.com, and you'll probably recognize her from her two popular podcasts, Homeschool Snapshots, and Your Morning Basket. This episode is sponsored by Your Morning Basket. Your Morning Basket is a guide that shows you step-by-step how to add the practice of morning time and delight to your homeschool day. Check out the guide and the companion podcast at yourmorningbasket.com. On today's show, Pam and I discuss learning styles and the fact that... There is no scientific evidence whatsoever to back them up. Obviously, Pam is trying to get us into trouble. But really, it was a great discussion, even if somewhat controversial. Also, if you've ever wondered how learning styles intersect or not with the classical tradition, we managed to go there. In our nitty-gritty question, We also confess our regrets and do-over desires in regard to early childhood education in our homes. And so, without further ado, let's get to it. All right. Well, do you want to start with your Scalay RDA? Well, so yesterday I interviewed Kevin Vost for the Your Morning Basket podcast. And so, obviously, if you're interviewing somebody, you kind of have to read their book. (laughs) But it's been fun to read his book. I have really enjoyed. So he actually has a number of books. But the one that's most known and the one I've been reading is Memorize the Faith. It's Memorize the Faith and Most Anything Else Using the Methods of Great Catholic Medieval Memory Masters. And so it's based on the, oh gosh, I can't even remember the Latin name of it, the loci... Uh, It's the memory palace technique, and it was Thomas Aquinas was one of the ones who really talked about it and used it, but it came from the ancient Greeks, and apparently at some point there was a big party, and this Greek guy had gone there to the big party, and he walks out, and the building collapses, and everybody inside is killed, and they can't recognize any of the bodies. And so he used this technique of where people were sitting, this visual memory of where people were sitting in the building to help families identify the bodies of their family members. Location, visual, memory-based, mnemonic is really what it is. Technique was born. Then they started using it in ancient times. And then I think Thomas Aquinas kind of revived it during his period. But basically what you do is you take bits of information that you're trying to remember and you create a visual image for that piece of information. And then you put it in a memory palace or a location that you're very familiar with. And you stick it in that location. Let's say if you were trying to memorize the Ten Commandments, you might use a room in your house and create a visual image for each commandment and put it in a specific location in that room. Mm -hmm. And then you could mentally walk through the room and see each of those images and remember the bit of information that you wanted to remember for each piece. It's really kind of fascinating in terms of what we're talking about today. But Dr. Vost was very adamant about the fact that you're not memorizing this information to be able to do it as like a parlor trick because he can use this technique to memorize, you know, like walk into a room and memorize 50 people's names or something within a number of minutes. But he said, you're not using it to memorize tenets of the faith or something like that as a, you know, as a parlor trick, you're using it to memorize these things in order to meditate upon them. 
as you're recalling these using this technique, you're recalling them in order to meditate on them. And so he has another book. It's a Catholic apologetics book called Memorize the Reasons. And then he also had contact with someone who was telling him about a prisoner of war who attributes his survival to going over the mass in his head every day. And that so reminded me of Cindy's, you know, memorizing for when your children are in prison and the rats are eating their toes uh, statement that she makes. And so he actually wrote a book called Memorize the Mass as well just so that you can memorize the mass and use it to sustain you when you need it. So really fascinating stuff. Wow. I think I've heard Jenny Rollins talk about her memory palace. I feel like there was even a Cersei podcast where she described memorizing one of the Psalms and she's kind of mentally walking through her house and visualizing. It really was a meditation technique that really stuck out to me was that she was visualizing the meaning of it. The psalm mentioned, I want to say it mentioned light and she could visualize the light coming through a certain window or something. It was interesting because up until that point, I had heard of memory palaces, but they seemed really contrived to me, Mm -hmm. more like the parlor trick. That was my perception of it. So to hear her describe it, that was the first time I ever encountered it, I guess, as a meditation technique. It was fascinating, really. Yeah. And, you know, he talks about how it can be used to memorize biology information or things like that. But really, the original intent with St. Thomas Aquinas was to memorize these things to use them as a meditation technique. So you watch the BBC Sherlock Uh, at all? I think I've caught part of an episode, but it's funny you should mention that because when we were preparing for the interview, my podcast manager, Mary, said, uh, I want to know if he looks anything like Sherlock. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't. (laughs) If you ever get a chance, you have to watch the last episode of season three, Mm -hmm. just because they use the memory palace throughout, but the last one, it's really, I don't want to give it away, but it's all actually centered on the memory palace. Anyway, it's fascinating. Hmm, I probably like just need to watch the whole series anyway. So Yeah, you probably would like it. It's really good. <laughs> <laughs> I bought seasons one through three for my husband for his birthday, and we have spent far too many hours watching Sherlock over the last few months. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Well, what about you? What's your RDA? Mine is actually norms and nobility. I was trying to revisit it briefly because I was looking for a quote, which of course I couldn't find. And so then I thought, well, I think this quote is near the beginning and I must not be remembering where it is on the page the way I thought I was. And so I just started at the beginning thinking, you know, I'll get there within the first 10 to 15 pages. And I didn't, but I did get sucked in. (laughs) And so, um, so apparently I'm rereading Norms and Nobility, which has just been because I have some new projects going on and I'm kind of coming to it, I think from a different place than I did when I the previous times I've read it, and I haven't read it in whole in at least two years, I think. I mean, I've read it a number of times, but it's been quite a while since I've read it. It's been interesting coming back to it, new things jumping off the page at you. You know how really good books do that. You, you know, they never, you never get tired of them, really. <laughs> and so it's been really good and very inspiring because I'm coming into a time where I'm going to probably be doing some teacher training for the first time. You know, his whole concept of the school within the school and the importance of keeping teachers trained and intellectually growing on their own and all that. It just things that I mean, I caught them the first time around, but weren't really pertinent, I mm-hmm. guess, to me rereading it from kind of a different perspective. Um, yeah, when you read with a different purpose, then different things jump out at you. So yes, in fact, I've been thinking I need to change colors of pens every time I read a book. Oh, that's a good idea. Just to track. So this is when I read it. And you know, I think the first time I, I read it with Cindy's book club. Goodness, when my youngest was an infant. Oh, wait, no, I read it with her after that. So When my youngest was an infant, I started reading it. So he was 10 months. I mean, and he's eight. (laughs) So I was like, oh, if I could have written down, you know, like this was when I read it in 2008. And this is when I read it in 2010 with her. And I don't know. I think it'd be interesting to track the underlinings and see. I I might do that next time I buy a book. I think is going to be really good. Track my underlining. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, well, why don't we go ahead and transition to our conversation since you have a football game that is <clears throat> important to some people. Um, it's college no football. So. <laughs> Say no more. <laughs> so our topic today, because you keep trying to get us into trouble, is learning styles are bunk. I think that's your other goal this season. 
it's to get it's us into to trouble. Start trouble with every episode. <laughs> it's not my fault that our last podcast caused people to curse. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard being this awesome. Um, <laughs> okay, so briefly, do you want to tell us what learning styles are, just so we're all on the same page? Learning styles, as we're using them right now, are kind of the terms that you hear all the time. Oh, my child is a visual learner. She learns things visually. Or my child is an auditory learner. They learn things by taking them in auditorily. Or this is my favorite. My kid is a kinesthetic learner. He has to move or he can't learn. Those kinds of things are what we're talking about as learning styles. And there's actually a much longer list, but those are the main three that you really hear talked about especially in homeschool circles. Yes, I've encountered that a lot too. I Googled history of learning styles to see if I could figure out, you know, where this came from, when it evolved. And that. Kind of, and one of the things I came up against was this idea that the original learning styles might have been left brain versus right brain. Mm-hmm. Right, which is also supposed to be bunk. Really? Yeah, that's, yeah. And doing some of my research. Now, I didn't go off on that rabbit trail, but uh, that was an assertion that was made at the same time <laughs> was that that was bunk too. <laughs> well, they, maybe that could be in season three. Left brain, right brain is bunk. I could just continue to leave a trail of <laughs> destruction. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, it's awesome. And the other thing I found, I found one little thing that also incorporated personality types. And so it was kind of like this I don't want to say concentric circles, but it was that kind of thing where things were nested inside of each other. And in the very center were social and solitary. Mm. So learning in community versus learning on your own was included in the definition of learning styles, which I thought was also interesting. Okay, that is interesting. Okay, so now that you say that, I could definitely see where I know this conversation is going. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I'm getting us off on a rabbit trail, but this makes so much sense. Okay, so what we're saying when we're saying that learning styles are bunk is that basically, well, really what we're saying is that there's no evidence, even though this is something people commonly believe. And I think there's a little bit of danger in this because you see so many blog posts and you see so many things online that says teach to your children's learning styles. And Mm -hmm. you also see homeschool curriculum that are like, oh, you know, We help you teach to your child's learning styles. And so we're going to talk a a little bit about what the danger of that is, but there's no evidence at all to support this idea that if you learn in a particular way, that you learn better. Right. I was really trying to find the other side when I was doing research for this episode. So I was trying to find anything and all I could really find was research regarding the development of a test to discover someone's learning style, but it didn't actually, I mean, it was making the assumption that learning styles were true. Right. You know what I'm saying? I couldn't actually find any research proving if you've identified someone's learning style and then you tailor everything. So you teach them in that way that they actually learn better, that their scores improve or anything like that. They're just, yeah, it just wasn't out there, which is, it is amazing what we believe, what we take for granted. We just assume that because everybody says it, there's research to back it up. Right. And and actually, the funny thing about learning styles is that the research actually shows quite the opposite. So one of the tests or one of the studies that was done not too long ago in 2006 was uh, it's perceptual learning styles and learning proficiency, a test of the hypothesis. And it's by Kratzig and Arbunat. Okay, so I probably totally messed those names up. I think they're German or something. But um, Sounds like it. it was published in the Journal of Educational Psychology in 2006. And one of the things as I was reading through the summary of the research that they did is that, you know, they had all these people come into a room and they issued, first of all, in order to figure out what their learning style was, they did two things. They asked them, what is your learning style? So they took a personal preference into account. And so, you know, maybe the people took a little survey or something. They said, oh, I'm definitely visual or, oh, I'm auditory or, oh, I'm kinesthetic. But then they issued this test to them. They gave them this test, like you were talking about, that was supposed to determine learning styles. And they noted it in the intro to their study. It says, surprisingly, these matched up very few times. So even The result that somebody got on the test that's supposed to determine what learning style they have, most of the time didn't match up with their self-perception of what their learning style was. 
Wow. You know, it's not like they had this really clean slate to work with because people were saying, I'm one thing, but the test was saying they were something else. And so then in this test, they did this test with the learning styles and really found out that it didn't matter if people learned things in their preferred mode or not, their ability to know it didn't change no matter how they had learned it. You know, okay, so when I was looking through the history, I found a paper that I actually thought was going to be pro learning styles, and it turns out it wasn't. (laughs) But that's why I was reading it, because like I said, I was looking for the other side. Uh, What is this? I'm trying to see what this is. This paper was completed as part of the master teacher program at the U.S. uh, Military Academy at West Point. So I guess this is a student's paper from West Point. Um, Anyway, so it has like some personal stuff and all that. But anyway, he goes into the history of learning styles and he basically says it developed shortly after the development of the first IQ test. Hmm. So in 1904, Binet developed the first IQ test. And then shortly after, you have Maria Montessori developing her hands-on approach, her kinesthetic approach to learning, which, of course, her kinesthetic approach was developed for, I mean, I know people use it for normally functioning children, but she was actually working with severely disabled children. That's She was trying to reach those who were commonly unreachable, which is kind of his point. As he's going through this, he's actually kind of concluding that the shift towards identifying learning styles was trying to figure out how to reach those who were not learning. So it was trying to explain why someone wasn't getting it. Right. That kind of dovetails. Well, you and you put up some stuff from Daniel Willingham, and I was reading some of his stuff, and his concern is that we use learning styles to mask learning disabilities because we're trying to explain why someone's not learning, and his thought is they might need an intervention and not just, oh, you're right-brained or, oh, you're kinesthetic or whatever. Now, was Maria Montessori, was she working with disabled kids or was she working in culturally disabled kids? And, and she may have done both, but I know at one point, uh, the large portion of her student base came from really poor Italian children who lived in like the slums and their parents went off to work every day. And so she built these centers of learning in their neighborhood so that these young kids would have a place to come and learn while their parents were gone. And so then you weren't necessarily talking about kids who had some kind of learning difficulty, but definitely kids who probably had some kind of what I would call a cultural learning difficulty. They weren't bringing a whole lot of background into the learning process. You know, like you could have a kid who struggles to read but if you give them this literature-rich background with audiobooks, they're still going to do much better than a, a child who never has that. Right. And so yes, uh, maybe Maria Montessori worked with both, but... Okay, so my understanding is that she did work with both. Okay. Yes. So she definitely worked with the children of the working class and the poor, which I know Charlotte Mason had a similar discovery. She, I think at the beginning of her work, Charlotte Mason believed the hereditary theory. So the upper class had intelligence and the poor really didn't, but it was sort of like genetically tied. That was kind of the theory at the time. And then Charlotte Mason ended up with some schools in really poor mining villages in England. And lo and behold, the poor can learn, <laughs> you know, and so she recanted. And I so I think some of that was very similar, which is funny, because they had kind of a contentious relationship, Charlotte Mason and Maria Montessori, they had a public debate between the two of them that took place in I don't know, letters or papers or something. My understanding, though, is that she Montessori worked in an asylum for the deficient and insane oh. children of the city. So the theory now is that most of those most of those children, probably not all, because I do think there was this assumption that some children were learning disabled when really they were just it's a different kind of intervention, I think, because it wasn't necessarily permanent. It was more like they were just that seriously disadvantaged in their early childhood, Mm -hmm. you know, right. But a lot of people think that what she was working, the children she was working with would have been classified now as autistic or some other mental disability. But I don't think that's the entirety of her career. It's just kind of where she got her start because that was, I'm looking at it right now, that was 1900. And I think her work was published in like 1907. So it was kind of like out of this time period and some of the work she was doing where, I mean, her methods did very much have a kind of a large sensory component to them that this idea of learning styles started to develop. Right. So she's, I guess, considered a contributor to that. But, you know, what's interesting is, I, you know, you always wonder if someone would see themselves that way. Right. 
you know, because I don't really recall her talking about learning styles. And that was sort of the point in one of the papers I was reading was that, you know, teachers have always done what it takes to reach someone. But what's new is putting someone in a box and saying, this is how they need to learn. Right. And, and I think this is an important thing for us to talk about. So first of all, before we dive off into that, though, let's talk about there's probably a mom sitting out there and they're saying, no, my kid is. It's, it's really true. I've seen it. So right. I think we need to address the point that there you do have a preferred way that you do like to take in information. Right. It's just not a learning style. Most people do have a preferred way. And so I could look at my daughter and I could say she prefers to take information in auditorily. You know, I see her do that. She loves audiobooks. Whereas you might have another kid. I've heard homeschool moms tell me about kids that they had who just really couldn't seem to listen when they were reading aloud. And so they needed to come sit beside them and see the words on the page. I don't know. Do you have one like that? Actually, I am like that. Okay. Not only do I not view that as a learning style, I view that as a handicap. And I'll tell you why. This is just my own personal experience. But that was how I always was. And I never had a teacher who did not cater to that because I think people were so excited to have to have a child who liked to read from a really young age and could get anything just by reading it. So I was never asked to just listen and understand. And I coped in college just fine because I just took tons and tons of notes and then I could read them, right? So I could visualize all of the words. But I, for many years, had extreme struggling like in conversation or if someone was trying to read a book aloud to me, it was seriously like zero comprehension. Nothing got into my head. Right. And it was awful. I mean, even now, my son will read something out loud from his math book and say, so what's the answer? And I'm, or how do I do this? And I'm, I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to read that before I can answer your question because it just sounded like blah, blah. It didn't sound like words to me. It's the, anyhow. I feel like it's a real disadvantage. I wish that when I was a child, I had had a teacher who required me to do some of my learning orally because it would have stretched me and developed that skill. And instead, as an adult, I'm trying to make myself learn that skill through listening to podcasts. Like I practice listening on purpose (laughs) because I have a really hard time. Anyway, so when someone tells me, you know, my child has to read along with everything, Just because of my own personal experience, my little red flags go up like, please. I mean, I get it. That's going to be and maybe an expedient way of getting the information, you know, from the page into your child. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But long term, I consider it a disadvantage. Right. So we're not saying there's not a preference. And actually, we're not even saying anything. The researchers are not saying that that you don't have a preference in your learning style or in the way you learn. I'm not going to call it a learning style, but you don't have a preference in the way you learn because you do. Most of us have a preference in how we want to take in information. But I thought this was really interesting was that most of the information we take in, most of the information you want your child to learn, you're wanting them to learn meaning. And meaning is not visual or auditory. You know, meaning, that's an idea. That's in your head. If we want them to memorize a list of words, sure, it might be easier for them to do it visually or auditorily, even though the research says it's not because that was how they tested people. But if you want them to know the meaning of those words, that's not visual or auditory at all. That's deeper understanding. Since this is a classical podcast, there really is no historical precedent for this from what I can see. You know, we will look back throughout the history of education. We don't really see, you know, we don't see Plato being like, well, you know, this kid needs to jump on a trampoline while he's doing his math lesson because he's a kinesthetic learner or, you know what I mean? We just don't, we don't see those things. We see the idea almost that there's, I don't want to say one right way to learn because that sounds so stringent, but that there are ideal ways to communicate different subjects and that we approach each subject in the ideal way and help the student, you know, rise to the occasion if they need help with that. I was trying so hard to think of an example where the ancients or even a more modern educator, I mean, before 1900, was catering to a child's preferences in that way, and I really couldn't find one. Well, modern progressive educators would tell you that they just weren't enlightened. (laughs) Which is not the assumption of this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) I found this, and I'll I'll link it, but it it was just a really short page from 
Cortland University or Cortland College or something, which I don't even know what that is. So, uh, but it just said, what are learning styles? And very quickly, it was quoting someone. So someone named Reef, R-I-E-F from 1993 says that students retain, which, you know, I would need to see the research to know if this is even true. But anyway, this is what this guy said. 10% of what they read, 20% of what they hear, 30% of what they see, 50% of what they see and hear, 70% of what they say, 90% of what they say and do. So then I was thinking, this is an interesting thing because if we think about narration. I knew this was coming back to narration. <laughs> when we think about narration, we think of something that you're telling back. So you're hearing it and supposedly you're seeing it in your mind because you're supposed to be visualizing it, especially if it's a story. It's supposed to be kind of playing like a movie in your mind. So you're hearing it and you're seeing it. And then you're saying it back and the part the imagination plays actually has the effect of doing in an experiential set and it's in the mind, but it's almost as if it has been done, if that makes sense. Anyway, so I'm like, mm-hmm. so it basically covers all the bases, <laughs> which was so right. interesting. Right. Yeah, that is. That is really interesting. Well, and I think you've hit upon something kind of fascinating with learning style. So we do have a preference, but is there a danger to playing to that preference, which you've already talked about with your experience earlier, that there is a danger, but is there a problem with kind of hitting all of those preferences in your teaching? And obviously narration. What do you think? I don't think there's a problem with it. I mean, if you're teaching, if you are teaching a child or a group of children to do something and you you make a statement to them and they give you a blank look, what do you do? you immediately find some way to rephrase that statement to teach it to them differently. And so then you might show them a picture or you might draw them a diagram or you might give them a different analogy, maybe even through story. Or you might take them somewhere if it's appropriate to the lesson. You might take them somewhere and let them touch one or take it apart. And so it's not that it's bad to do that. I think that's good teaching. But... I don't think you, you know, Mm. I think that's just good teaching all the way around. What do you think? I agree. Well, and I just the more I think about some of the more ancient methods like narration, but not exclusively that I think that's what they were already doing. So I think maybe the danger lies in categorizing a child as one type of learner and then catering everything to that, because then it's almost equivalent to specialization. And so we're we're not saying, okay, humans take in information mm-hmm. through all five senses, right? We take in information, we visualize, and we hear, and we see, and we say, and we do. Like, those are all the components of being human. So why would we truncate that and say, but you really like to hear, so we're just going to focus on hearing. I mean, we can obviously consider that someone likes to hear, but... You know, maybe part of this is the difference between seeing persons, (laughs) this is like a tension I think that exists right now, seeing persons as humans, so something they all have in common, versus seeing persons as individuals, how they're all different. And I think that maybe some of this is, you know, we're continually breaking people apart in our culture into different diverse groups, and everybody gets their own little Mm -hmm. label, and everybody gets to be catered to, and we're not focused on our common humanity. So our common humanity is all these different ways of taking in information, and so to become fully human, right, that's our classical ideal, is we're humanizing our kids then we would use them all. Oh, that's such an excellent point. Yeah, that we would need to be adept at using all of those modalities of learning in order to become fully human. And then from just kind of a practical, pragmatic standpoint, your child, as they grow up, is not going to be put into situations where he can stand up and say, excuse me, excuse me, I'm a visual learner. You know, could you please give me that visually, (laughs) you know, or I'm not going to be able to learn it. And so if you cater to that preference, then, you know, at the detriment of the others, at the detriment of strengthening the others, then they're going to always run up against these situations where they're struggling to learn because they're having to do it in a non-preferred modality. So here's my question to you. Here's a practical question. Let's say I'm sitting here with my child and my child really, really prefers to learn auditorially or audibly, audibly. Orally, I think they used to call it orally, right? A-U-R or something. Anyway, and so I'm really trying to teach this child something and 
So how do I balance this idea that I really do feel like I reach my child this way with I'm supposed to develop this child's full humanity? I mean, how do we walk that line? A lot of times the content itself dictates the best way to present the content. And so go with what is typically the best way to present that piece of content. And then if it doesn't work, search for an alternative way. Okay, so let's say you present something to your child who's, you know, has an auditory preference. You present it to them visually and they just don't get it. And then uh, then you, you know, maybe present a second visual and then you go on to some kind of auditory presentation. At least they've still practiced. They've worked that muscle of that visual stuff. Unless they just always lay there and, you know, like bumps on a log until the auditory comes. I don't know. <laughs> that would be a character flaw. So. <laughs> I had a situation with a child who is just not a natural speller at all and was really struggling with spelling. I mean, it still does. It's not like this has magically gone away. But I had read that good spellers are good visualizers. They can see the word. You know, that's why when they when they misspell something, they'll say, well, that just doesn't look quite right. Right. Because they it's like they have these pictures of what the word is supposed to look like in their mind. With this particular child that was struggling, I remember, I don't know, I don't remember exactly how we came to the conclusion, but realizing that she just generally had trouble visualizing things in her mind. If I said, try to imagine such and such, it was like, what What are you talking about? You know, nothing. I close my eyes mm-hmm. and there's nothing there, <laughs> you know? And so I started doing extra picture study at that time to try to develop the mind's eye because I think it's easier to picture something interesting right. than it is to picture a spelling word. <laughs> But it was it was really fascinating to try to develop her ability to picture something in her mind using famous artwork, you know, just the normal picture study where you close your eyes and you're trying to see in your mind's eye what you just saw on the page and then comparing them back and forth until you get it pretty clear and all of anyway, so all of that to say the spelling weakness ended up being, yes, there's an ideal, like the ideal speller has certain strengths, one of them being visualizing the word. And so she couldn't spell, but she didn't have that strength. Okay. See, Andrew Poodle, would tell you something different. <laughs> oh, really? What would he say? Tell because me. Because he has a thing. Oh, man. And of course, I'm going to probably like get this really wrong. But he has a talk called Spelling in the Brain that you need to listen to. And one of the things he talks about in there is how spelling is sequential. And so you need an auditory spelling. You need to actually sit down and say the letters of the word in order, as opposed to just trying to look at the word and picture it. Interesting. Yeah, I can't. I mean, it's been a while since I listened to that talk, but get it and listen to it. And I I know my Olivia, who is a preferred auditory learner, she does. She I'm okay. It's time to spell. Can we do a spelling bee? She wants to stand there and say the letters in order as opposed to sitting down and writing them down, even though sometimes she does write them down and she looks at it and she's like, that's not the way that word looks. And she erases it and then tries to figure out how it's right. So I think it's it's not just it's mm-hmm. not just visualization. Yeah. Well, you know what's interesting about that is we've looked at least the history of American education. There's a long history of spelling bees. Mm-hmm. I mean, remember in um, Little House on the Prairie somewhere? I mean, isn't it Pa who wins a spe- like they have a village right. spelling bee or something? And Pa, I think so. <laughs> and yeah. Pa's up there. <laughs> it's like even the parents are practicing their spelling. And it's true. We do a lot of spelling orally, like historically anyway. So the huh. Yeah. You're rocking my world Sorry. here. I'm going to have to look that yeah. up. No, it's fine. I'm always up for more information. <laughs> well, okay. And so here's another danger. One of the things I found when I was researching was there was this 1984 study. What it showed. Okay. So if you're being taught in your preferred learning style. And you perceive this is going to be easy because they're teaching me in my preferred learning style. So this is, I've got this. It can actually decrease the amount of material that you learn because you're going to be lazy with it. You're like, I got this. Hmm. And so they actually did a study back in 1984 that showed that if people thought their learning style was being catered to, and that's not exactly what the study was, but if they thought they were being taught in the way that they perceived as their best learning style, then they typically learned less because of that perception that it would be easy to learn. That is so fascinating. Just kind of reminds me of the necessity of the humility of the learner. Yeah. You know, anytime we come to something thinking we already know, we don't need to be taught this. I mean, that's not exactly what they're thinking, but it sounds similar. This is easy for me. I've got this 
kind of on a different level, but still it kind of backfires. Yeah. Because <laughs> then we then we don't got this. <laughs> no, not at all. And so, you know, I think we can handicap our kids by not stretching those less preferred learning styles. Uh, learning modalities, but we can also cause them to be overconfident and not learn as much because we're only Mm. presenting them information in the way that they want to receive it. I met this young man one time, and it's been a number of years now, but he was just starting college, and he actually told me that his, and I do think he had some learning disabilities and things, but you know, his parents called the college and explained to the college. I'm trying to not be sarcastic here because I thought about saying how he's a special snowflake. (laughs) But, you know, explain to the college about his preferred learning style. He needs his tests to be done orally. And the college accommodated this. And there's a big move towards college accommodating things like this. I mean, that's not unusual anymore. But I remember thinking, oh, you poor child. (laughs) Because when you grow up and get a job and your boss he sends you something in writing and expects you to write back to him. You can't turn around and say, you know, my preferred learning style is oral. (laughs) You know, he may have had major disabilities. I don't know. I'm, you know, and I understand, oh, I understand our desire to help our children succeed, do whatever it takes. But I just, when I was observing him, I was wondering how much this had backfired. You know, they had, they had succeeded. They had been very loving and they had embraced him and they had helped him. But I felt like he was approaching the world as everyone should accommodate me. And I'm not sure he would become a successful person that way. Well, I think you've hit upon the crux of it right there. A learning style or in what we're referring to, a learning preference is not a disability. You know, so the fact that you don't prefer to learn visually or you don't prefer to learn kinesthetically is not a disability. It's simply a preference. And so, you know, if we start accommodating these preferences at the expense of the others, then, you know, we have created a situation for our children that's going to be detrimental to their becoming fully human, to their character development, to their ability to pragmatically participate in the world at large, you know? And so we're doing our children a great disservice. By doing that. And, you know, I, I don't know how many homeschool moms are out there catering to their children in such a fashion. But I do know that there's there's some money being made in the homeschooling industry. And there's certainly a lot of stuff on, you know, homeschooling blogs and things like that, that depend upon this idea that these things are important. And really, there's no research to back it up. You know, at one of these pages, I found that had the factor fiction and had a bunch of the research basically said that as long as people assume this is true, there will be snake oil salesmen out there taking advantage of it. I do wonder if sometimes we're being misdirected when really the child needs maybe occupational therapy or some sort of therapy for Mm -hmm. dyslexia or dysgraphia. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, we might be catering in this way, but we're actually then denying the services that might seriously improve the situation. I'm thinking about how, um, what's her name? The gal that did Logic in English, Denise Ide. And she talks about, you know, her definition of dyslexia is if you still can't read after you go through all of these different things that are the best way of teaching reading. After that, then we will say you are dyslexic if you still can't do it. Because she just felt like part of the whole mess we have is that they're not being taught properly. If we try to seek out the ideal way of teaching any particular subject or any particular skill, and we do that, instead of focusing on accommodation, we might actually be doing them a better service over the long term. Right. We like to eliminate the tension that is necessary in learning. And I think this is like a whole new podcast. But there is a tension in learning. I think you have to struggle with something in order to internalize it and make it your own. And you have to struggle with it in some way. And a lot of times that struggle can be a little bit unpleasant. By eliminating that, I think we eliminate real learning. We just want to spoon feed. And uh, Mm. we make it, you know, we, we smooth the path so much and make everything so easy. But then we create kids who are incapable of wrestling with an idea and understanding it. Oh my goodness, I love that. I wish I didn't have another question because we should end there. <laughs> <laughs> but I did want to ask you really quickly just your opinion on this thought that came into my mind. Oh, is, I never have opinions. Right. I know. I'm asking the wrong person, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, 
Do you think that there's a difference? So let's say, I really do think my child has a learning style. Don't care what the research says. I really think this about my child. Do you think that there is a difference between me just kind of keeping that in the back of my head and using it as a tool when things get difficult versus telling my child, this is your learning style. Here's how I'm accommodating it. You know, even so far as here's how the college needs to accommodate you, which we already talked about. (laughs) But do you think there's a difference there in the effect upon the child? Yeah, completely, totally. Because, you know, telling your special snowflake that is one thing, but keeping it in the back of your mind so that, you know, when the toddler's screaming and the dog's barking and the washing machine's running over, you've sent the kid to watch the math video a couple times and they just can't get it. And then you, you know, you pull out, I don't know, the blocks and they do it with the blocks and oh, all of a sudden they've got it because you have it in the back of your head that they're kinesthetic and they need to move the blocks. And that's a horrible example too. Because that gets into like little kids needing concrete and all of this crazy stuff. So that, that's a bad example. But yeah, if you, if you pull it out of your pocket when you need it because your day's just going crazy, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's like, oh, well, if I, would just, if I would just let Olivia stand up and spell these words orally today, we can move on. There's not a, a thing wrong with that in the world. As opposed to me telling her, well, you're an auditory learner, my dear. Right. And so we're going to let you spell your spelling words out loud every single time. But I don't. I make her write them on the paper sometime. And I make her mm. do the dictation and, uh, you know, write that down and all of that stuff. And that's what's important. And, you know, you have programs. So I'm thinking about programs like All About Reading and Matthew C. Where they really do hit all of these different learning styles. And I, and I don't want to like call anybody out in a bad way, but they say, oh, we, we do use all modalities. I think that's a good thing that they use all modalities. But I think when you're teaching with those programs, you use all the modalities right. when you're teaching because then your child is getting practice strengthening all of those modalities. And that totally got off the topic too. I don't think there's a problem with that. I don't think there's a problem with keeping that in your back pocket and pulling it out when you need to get through. But don't let it be your default. Yeah. You know, it, it would be really easy for me to get an audio book of every book Olivia needs to read for and just let her listen to it. But that's really not helping her build mm. her own fluency in reading. I would be doing her a disservice to do that. So true. Words of wisdom from Pam Barnhill. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Pam Barnhill usually has to eat her words of wisdom. <laughs> Well, I think we can move on to our nitty gritty question. And this question, I chose this because you and I have been discussing this recently anyway. Mm -hmm. And that's the, you know, what are your, this is from Sandy. uh, What are your general guiding principles for kindergarten and down? What did your days look like when you had just little guys in your homeschools? If you could have a do-over, what would you do differently? You want to go first? Well, I was thinking, really, (laughs) I should just link that post that I wrote because I did kind of talk about that in my post. That was pretty much the point. But Okay, for all of our auditory listeners who don't want to go read a post, they just want to (laughs) listen to the answer. (laughs) I'm Googling my own post so I can remember what I said. So I just recently wrote a post on teaching reading with Bob books that was called what I wish I'd known about homeschooling in the early years. So personally, my conclusion has just been that Charlotte Mason was even more right than I realized about early childhood education. And so if I could do it over, we would have gone outside so much more. I explained in the post that some of it was I ended up on bed rest when I had my first real preschooler. And then then I went into this three and a half year period. So like his entire toddler years and preschool years were me being pregnant and or nursing. And I was really not doing well with my health. We were, you know, he preferred talking about preferences. He preferred to be inside. He was hyperlexic. He read early. So he would have loved to have just sat there with a book the whole time. And I did not have the energy to deal with it. And so we didn't really do it. Looking back, I would say that was probably the most detrimental thing because then I had to teach him to be outside when he was older. Um, and he, he doesn't now, but it was a really hard couple of years, him learning to go outside, to be alone outside. To, I mean, any of those kinds of things. I remember actually telling him he had to go outside setting a timer and it was a five minute timer. And he's like crying and hanging on the sliding door, getting fingerprints and snot all over the door. <laughs> I mean, but like, did... Sounds like me when I have to go yeah. outside. <laughs> the same thing, Pam. Um, 
But I mean, real like he really, for some reason, I have no idea why, did not like it. And I was thinking later, if I had just gone with him when he was tiny, before he got to be that age where I felt like he should be able to do this on his own, I think it would have just been a whole different world. Charlotte Mason talks about that. Don't send them, take them. Right. I never liked that. I, right. That was pro- probably one of the biggest things that turned me away from Charlotte. Right. <laughs> Because uh, this lady never lived in Alabama. Yeah, and that is true. That is true. When you look at the weather that they had, I mean, they had lots of rainy stuff, but they did not have 114 degree days or your 90% humidity or, you know, any of the kinds of things that you and I experience. Snakes. Yes, that's another thing. I don't want to get off on that tangent, but I'm like, <laughs> obviously, England is not as dangerous as where I live because I'm like, don't touch that spider. It, you could die. Don't touch that snake. You could die. <laughs> you know, you know, for people who live in Australia, like everything's trying to kill you in Australia. They probably read Charlotte Mason and think she's nuts. <laughs> so. Probably so. <laughs> but And I still am, and maybe this is a whole other podcast, too, <laughs> but I'm not sure about the virtue of being outside over inside. Why is it more virtuous? to be outside than it is to be inside. You know, and maybe it was the fact that Charlotte Mason's little kids didn't have rough and tumble places to play inside. Maybe they always had to be proper ladies and gentlemen inside. But you know, if you could see the room I'm sitting in right now, it's obvious that children have been moving and playing in here. Right. So I'm not 100% convinced that you're more virtuous for spending hours outside. I'm not saying you should never get outside and you should never observe And you should never do things like that. I'm just not sure it's more virtuous. Which of the 20 principles says it's more virtuous to spend hours outside than it is to be inside? That's the 21st principle. (laughs) (laughs) So, Uh, but I I mean, I will say, I I do think um, there is some evidence that your hormones do better if you spend a number of hours outside. Which is kind of a different thing. So thinking about growing children and their hormones and that kind of thing, the effect of ultraviolet light and different types of light and... Anyway, not to get too into all that kind of stuff. I do think there's some evidence for that. But for me, the big picture of if I had taken him, and like I said, when I really first started thinking about it, he's fighting me and I'm on bed rest. Not exactly the ideal situation. Yeah, you have to give yourself some grace. Right. But if I had taken him, if I had figured it out or done it later or whatever, then there wouldn't have been the issues that we had later, if that makes sense. Right. So So it's sort of the whole, you know, you do it, you build the good habit now, or you spend all the time and energy breaking the bad habit later, it's always easier to build the good good habit first, though it doesn't feel like it at the time. (laughs) Right. No, it never does, does it? Yeah. So the things that seem like extras, the listening to music and looking at beautiful pictures and observing the things in them and talking about them and reading nursery rhymes. I mean, and we did do some of that, but I didn't spend as much time on poetry. I just feel like there's a lot of things now that could have rounded out our days. And instead, I read some very academic preschool book early on. And so we were inside doing very academic stuff, Mm -hmm. which was easier to do while on bed rest and feeling like you're dying. But I just feel like looking back, those are some of the things I would do earlier. And I will link this post if this person wants to read my post. Start with the extras instead of starting, you know, oh, we got to do history and math and spelling because we're five. (laughs) Right. You know, Right. Starting with the extras and add all the other stuff later. That would be my approach. And that's kind of what I did with my younger children. What do you think? What would you do different? Oh, all of it. Yeah, completely. (laughs) It's the same. It's the same thing for me. You know, I was so anxious to start. And I don't know, we've just kind of been fed this line that living life is not enough for a little kid. And really, it is exactly what they need to be doing. They need to be building good habits. They need to be working on the habit of attention. And that's not from sitting there doing a worksheet. Obedience is huge. You know, if you get a child to six years old and they're just a generally obedient child who has that as a very good habit, you've won half your educational battle right there. Oh, amen. So, you know, working on those good habits that have nothing to do with academics and then letting them play, whether it be outside or inside. I have no problem with my children going outside. I just don't want to go with them. (laughs) You know, as long as they stay away from the snakes, which we've had conversations about this. You know, playing and running and then just reading lots of books to them. Lots and lots of Mm -hmm. good picture books. And that may not be a Charlotte Mason thing, but I like it. So reading lots of good picture books to them, 
reading poetry to them, just enjoying being together and talking and having these conversations and going places and living without the pressures that come later when you do have to sit down and teach them to read and work on uh, math and work on some of these harder habits, these more academic habits. If I had it all to do over again, the only book we would crack before age five would be like a read aloud. And other than that, we would just play. I think if there's one thing to end on, it's that the more moms I talk to that have experienced a number of years, or maybe they're done with their preschoolers, that, that homeschool, homeschool moms, that is the number one regret yeah. that I hear oh, yeah. over and over is being too academic too soon with with the children. Yeah. And it's interesting because then we feel like we have to make up for it. So then they're like third grade and we're like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> let's give them some freedom and let's, you know, let's let them play all day. And let's, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I still think third graders need plenty of playtime, but I'm just thinking, I think some of that is guilt because we didn't let them have it when they needed to have it. And so now we're like trying to figure out how to fit it in. Right. Does that no, make sense? it completely makes sense. Though I will say, it's a complicated morass, I will say. Is that how you say that word? It morass? is. Morass, because it's so much easier when your youngest is seven, and then you've got one who's nine and 11 to pack everybody up and go to the park or a field trip or something like that. So the irony is, it's harder to find the time, right. but it's a lot easier to do now. And I think the moral of the story is, is you, you can't live your life in regret. You got to give yourself grace and Amen. Neither one of our children were harmed in the making of this podcast or in their early education. (laughs) And so we're just going to move on from here. Well, what is that we talked about in one of our previous podcasts that we're responsible for what we know. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes we look back with regret because we're feeling responsible for things we actually didn't know. Yeah, that's true. So we're not responsible for what we didn't know. That's exactly true. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. This is been great to talk to you. You are welcome. It was a lot of fun. It's always a pleasure. That's it for today. Thank you so much for listening and being a part of the sisterhood of the podcast. We cannot thank you enough for your reviews. You guys are awesome. And we hope you keep leaving them. So please, if you haven't left a review yet, today is your day. Go do it. Also, don't forget about the Scully Sisters Forum. There are some virtual Scully Sister groups forming now so you don't want to miss it just go to scolaysisters.com slash join to get more details on that our next episode is going to be fantastic if i do say so myself i had the opportunity to discuss the reading of pagan literature with the one and only wes callahan what do we do if we have a child that freaks out at the very mention of other gods you won't want to miss this one Until then, we want to remind you once again that homeschooling is a marathon you needn't run alone. So open up your eyes and look around you. Find your sisters. Well, should we start? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Let's get this party on the road. I have a football game at 11, you know. Yeah. We have priorities here. (laughs) Hey, Brandy. Okay, there we go. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I can hear you now. Um, Yeah. It looks like I had an internet problem briefly. So sorry about that.